0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Over the Line, a maintenance disrupted podcast, and I'm your host, Steve Doby. Today, I welcome one of the biggest disruptors in maintenance I can think of, Cliff Williams. He has been disrupting the maintenance world for many, many years and has agreed to come on our show and share some of that wisdom with our audience. Um, It is always great to have Cliff on the show. He has done plenty of episodes with Rob and Really excited to have him here to talk about asset life cycles. I don't do a lot of talking in this episode, and for good reason. When Cliff is talking, uh, I find it best just to sit back and listen, because the wisdom he is giving is unparalleled, and he he doesn't sugarcoat anything, and just a fantastic uh, speaker to listen to. Before we get to our episode, just a quick message from our sponsor, Starwest Petroleum. Hello, everybody. This is Steve Doby here, one of your hosts of Maintenance Disrupted. If maintaining heavy equipment in BC and Alberta is part of your job, I'm excited to tell you about the fuel and lubricant supplier, StarWest Petroleum. Having personally worked with StarWest in a previous job, I can tell you their service is unmatched, and they are committed to saving you both money and downtime. Their service team learns your equipment and suggests ways to extend its life and overall perform better. I was in the throes of starting a new job at a large-scale mine in BC, and we wanted to improve reliability quickly. One of our top issues was hydrocarbon management, and with the support of Starwest team, we were able to reduce our cost and ultimately chart a better path forward for our hydrocarbon management. My bosses were impressed, but I really can't take the credit. StarWest Petroleum did all the legwork. StarWest is a top-tier distributor of Philips 66 Lubricants, Kendall Performance Motor Oils, Phillips 66 Aviation Lubricants, Red Line Synthetics, and Aspen Alkylate Fuel for Professionals. Also available from StarWest is clear and marked gasoline and diesel heating and furnace oil, but really it's their customer service that stands out. For more information, go to starwestpetroleum.ca or send me an email and I will get you in contact with the StarWest team. You'll be glad you did, and so will your equipment. Now, here's your episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm your host, Steve Doby, and I've got a special guest with us today, uh, Cliff Williams. Welcome back to the show, Cliff. How's it going today?
1: Great, Steve. Great to be with you again. And uh, yeah, it's a beautiful day outside. So yes, all things are wonderful.
0: And We talked a bit about it before before we started recording. But how is retirement going? Are you ready to jump back into the maintenance world and and uh, leave leave the, the quiet life behind?
1: Um, I, I actually never left the maintenance world. It's um, <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's uh, how do we put it? It's it's diversifying within the maintenance world as opposed to leaving it. Um, I think I've been busier uh, in retirement with things like podcasts, which I love to do. Uh, I must have done four visual conferences. I'm planning to do two more shortly. You know, We've done them in Egypt. We're doing one in Australia in May. Uh, I'm writing articles and, and doing all sorts of things like that. So it's, it's uh, a case of doing more what Cliff Williams wanted to do with reliability than Urco uh, Worldwide wanted Cliff Williams to do with reliability. So um, yeah, and jumping back in, um, I don't think it'll be too much more than I'm doing now. Uh, but as I said, I, I'm busier now than I was, so I guess it's, uh, I'm in there.
0: Well, that's the dream, just working on the stuff you want to work on. So it sounds, sounds per- pretty good. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, um i've been uh, in this maintenance reliability game for too many years and i'd care to remember started way back when actually did an apprenticeship many years ago in the uk uh, and then was luckily got involved in uh, what was one of the first cmms's um, it was in the mid-70s when most of the people around the, uh, the podcast probably weren't alive Uh, and the computer was actually the size of a semi-truck but it was uh, a really great opportunity because it actually introduced me to maintenance and reliability to understand what of you know it it wasn't just about fixing things so that was a great uh, a great exposure and gone on from there uh, stayed in the steel industry for a while and moved into pulp and paper where in Canada uh where again i was extremely lucky to have an organization that let us go wherever we wanted to go as long as we could demonstrate the value Um, and it was an excellent 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 learning and uh, then moved through a food food and beverage which i have to be honest i didn't really enjoy that much uh mainly because um that, that type of organization is run by sales and marketing and they don't understand the need for maintenance. That just makes uh, me so, think
0: of that Dilbert. Uh, uh, I think there was a Dilbert episode where they bring in a marketing department and their organization just explodes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It was uh, it, it really, it's really tough. Um, it, it just, just makes um, maintenance and reliability and even operations difficult because that's, uh, you know, they're in business to sell products and they're in business looking at shelf space and that that's what they measure, not, not you know, how, how well we did with our PMs. Um, and then I moved on to, again, another lucky uh, move was to move on to a chemical company based in Toronto um, with plants all around North America and South America as I was the corporate maintenance and reliability manager there for, which I just retired from. And that was a great, great experience. Um, taking all of those uh, all of those plants, pulling them together, getting them all on the same page, having all of the maintenance managers sharing. And oh, it, it was just an incredible experience to have. It was, it was excellent. Um, through all of this, I've been teaching for PMAC. Uh, I've taught their MMP program for many years. I no longer teach it. I've been teaching their AMP program, which is asset management since its inception am still teaching it,
0: which I'm um, taking right now uh, yeah oh. <laughs> I ended up signing up after we chatted about it so <laughs> yeah it's, it's a
1: I love it I, I really do it's uh, I, I, I'm teaching two classes at the moment I, I love it. I, it it's such a great it, it's a great experience as um, we kind of see lights going on. It's, it's really, it's really good. I, I got a, an email this morning from someone and it was just a, yeah, the light went on and it was like, ah, cool. That was such a cool <laughs> thing. Um, so I've been doing that, uh, at conferences, uh, I've been, uh, keynote speaking throughout North America, South America, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. Um, and there's nothing more I love than being up on stage. Um, I'm a performer, not a presenter. That's what someone told me, and uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. So uh, yeah, that's me. That's oh, me that's great, Cliff.
0: Yeah, that's 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 awesome. And I think, you know, you've had such a long career and been in so many different places that you have a perspective that very few others have. So really excited to have you on the show today.
1: Yeah, let's 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 hope I can pass a little on. <laughs>
0: so today i just wanted to talk about um asset life cycles a bit and you know we when we look at iso 55000 and asset management um the asset life cycle is such a big component to that and and certainly within the maintenance and reliability worlds we're primarily looking to just use maintenance and reliability to achieve a certain expectation out of a life cycle what do you think are kind of the the main things that a lot of organizations are missing right now in their life cycle planning.
1: I think it goes right back to the very beginning is uh, just understanding the concept. Okay. You know, we, we're, we're going to have uh, equipment. We're going to have machinery. We're going to have, you know, buildings. uh, And I don't think that initially, there's enough input, uh, enough thought, enough uh, quantification of um, what exactly is wanted out of that asset, and it's okay. So we're looking at it at a concept stage, and we're looking at it. Okay, you know what? What really do we we want out of this asset? What is it that we're looking for? Have we got that plan in mind? And and using that concept. Going out and making sure that we actually start off with the right equipment, with you know, and and it has to be taken. Uh, talking about things like asset management is that okay? Um, if we go out, and the concept is to deliver a specific objective, that's okay for today. But what happens when our objectives increase? Our injective, our objective change do we still have that room? Do we still have that ability to deliver? Uh, Or do we just say, okay, this is the concept. This is what we wanted to do. This is what we expect and leave it at that. And then if things change, if markets change, if uh, municipalities grow, all of these things, and you suddenly find out that what you have really can't deliver what you need to deliver because in your concept, you were stuck at that beginning stage. So it starts there. And then it, it kind of builds upon, upon that when we start to look at then, okay, now that we've, if we've got the concept right, we can at least identify the right equipment the the right way of approaching things. And then we get into the design and the commission, and then the operate and the maintain, and then the disposal, but it all starts there. And then each stage moving on from it has its risks in that, okay, we can design and and, uh, we can have these wonderful design plans. And then uh, when it finally gets to the the operation, you know, the actual life cycle uh, activities, um, people turn around and say, well, whoever designed this, how, how come, you know, why was this designed that way? Why, why wasn't it? And that usually comes from not involving the right people. And it's, it's the same with concept as well, is do we get the right people involved from the beginning? So all through these stages, there is that one common theme of, of that people. And as you know, I love, to me, it's all about people, but um, really it's having those right people in those separate stages so that they can give input so that the decisions that get made are the, are, are the best decisions that you can make. Um, They might not be perfect, but um, if you're missing out on on one particular aspect, and it's not just, you know, we need to get operations and maintenance involved. We need to get procurement involved. You know, we need to get IT involved. We need to get everybody involved just because um, despite what everyone thinks, operations and maintenance don't own the equipment and don't have the complete uh, you know, responsibility or the complete accountability for getting the asset life cycle that you desire. There's a lot more plays into it. And, and I, I think, I think I've taken a long time to answer a simple question, but, <laughs> but um, really it's, a, it's about, again, is getting those right people and and for each distinct part of the, of the uh the life cycle, I say from concept to disposal, is getting the right people involved and coming out with the right results for that particular component. Because if you mess up on the first one, the second one's gonna be messed up because you've got a wrong basis. You mess up on the second one, the third one's going to be, and so on and so on. So it's getting those right people involved, which I don't think organizations do. They come out, they have a, a, a kind of grandiose wish well, we want to get it in the market. We want to be selling 10,000 of them by week 27
0: with mm-hmm.
1: nothing more, you know, and nothing. And then it's passed on. Nobody's, nobody's consulted. It's just sort of kind of, okay, you take it from here. Well, no, it's not, uh, that's not the way it should work.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's funny. Cause like most, I think most engineers and, and people probably listening to this podcast, they didn't have a whole lot of input into the acquisition of any assets. And so like, I know for me, I started one job at a mine and I was given the fleet of fleet of trucks to plan for. And there was about five different types of trucks, but there was only 20 trucks. So it's, hmm. you know, it, there, there wasn't a lot of thought on that maintainability portion of, of that haul truck fleet for, for understanding, you know, what parts you need, but how do you think we can manage? And, you know, we're looking at life cycles. Like I I come into an organization, I get a truck that's 25%, 50%, maybe 90% of the way through its life. How do we kind of take those life cycle approaches um, and and add that into assets that are already in service? Like, you know, we have some, some companies have things that have been going for 40 years and I don't know if they have a well-defined Life cycle plan for some of those that legacy equipment. So, what are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, and this this is a this can be a challenge. Um, and and when we look at things, uh, the, the differences um, between uh, organizations such as uh, you know industry, manufacturing, and municipalities. If we look at the differences in in their approach, um, you know municipalities don't even look typically don't even look to extend the life cycle. Uh, The municipalities, the first thing they think of is when something is going wrong or even when it's reached its typical life cycle is to replace it with new. They they don't even look for these things to see, okay, how can we extend this life? Um, But uh, go back to the kind of asset management uh, perspective of your assets are there to derive value. So when you look at the, you know, where they are at the life cycle and you sort of say, okay, there's 50%, there's 60%, there's 70%, whatever is of the typical life cycle. And it's only a typical life cycle. Uh, as you said, some organizations will have a truck or whatever that lasts 40 years. Others, they're falling apart by 20. You know, they just don't, don't move forward because they didn't have the right maintenance and, and didn't do all of the right things that they needed to do. They may not have been operated correctly or to step back even further is they may have been the wrong pieces of equipment for that (laughs) particular, you know? So again, it's, we keep coming back to, did we get the, did we get the front end right? Because that affects those life cycle activities in that, because if it's, if the equipment is not the right equipment, it doesn't matter what we do in the life cycle activities, it's going to be extremely difficult to extend the life. So, understanding first of all is yes, do we have the right equipment for what we want? And then you look at it that value proposition say, okay, um, you, yes, we're, we're able to keep this running for the next 20 years, but is it going to do what we really want to do from the value proposition? Because again, markets change, competition do things. And so you kind of say, okay, is this really going to deliver value for the, li- the rest of its life cycle? And, and when you think about as well, when you look at uh, you know, equipment and when it's getting 60, 70% of its life cycle, uh, you think of the technological change that may have gone on in 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 that life cycle so now it's not just a case of do we keep this going to get that hundred percent you know or 120 or 150 or or 200 whatever it may be is does that represent value to us because okay we can yes do we can carry on and really do really the good pms we can do the good inspections we can make sure we have the parts that are required you know and, and use the uh, you know the, the correct parts are not the, the cheap ones or try and do things cheaply you can do all of that and extend the life of that asset and, and that's okay except that for a little bit more money or you know if we were to go out and say okay and, and a prime example um when i think about uh Items like this were were when I worked for a a big beverage company, I won't mention its name, but a very, very, very big beverage company. um, Whereby we were running um, juice packs and the current machines, we were maintaining them well and we thought we could get another 10, 10 years out of them, maybe, you know, 12 years. Um, the, The challenge was that when this big company looked outside and talked to the, uh, the equipment manufacturers, the equipment manufacturers came back and said, why are you doing that? They said, well, we want to get our extended life cycle. We want to get this going. And they said, yeah, but we've got a machine now that will produce a hundred times more pack per hour. Why are you bothering with that? You know, yes, sure. You're going to get that life cycle. You're going to get that extra 10 years but the amount of money that you're able to make by actually buying this new technology and using that will will more than than compensate. It just sort of dwarfs what you're going to achieve. So again, before you make those decisions on how to extend, does it make sense? Does it make sense from the business perspective? Does it make sense? Uh, And and that's the, I know we keep talking about asset management and 55,000, but I think it is the new, You know, it's the new regime, so it's worth talking about. And, and, you know, that's what it's looking at is its value. Not can we get, I'm a maintenance guy, you know, you know, let's run this to the end until as long as we can. Let's do to make it go, make go. (laughs) That's changed. Now the perspective is how long can we keep it running so that it provides the value that we want? And if it's not providing the value that you want, and so we get into things like, uh, you know, things like, um, you know, repair or replace. Always a tough decision in this life cycle. As you say, you get 60, 70% and you need a bit bit of a a major overhaul. Do you do that major overhaul or do you buy a new one? Do you look at it and say, anytime we spend more than 50% of the cost of a new piece of equipment, we'll actually replace it. With a new piece of equipment and there are all these kind of tactics that that we use to determine do we continue to support the asset or do we replace the asset well now we've got this thing about value in there and also value from from that perspective of looking at it is you know what do we what we anticipate our future demand to be because yeah we might be able to keep it going for five years but we may get out of that market. We may not want, and and there's all these other things such as technology that come into play into the decisions as to why you even decide to extend that life. So that's the that's the big challenge right now is uh, from from a, an asset management perspective, as opposed to the good old maintenance perspective, which was keep it running
0: at all costs. Just get yeah. get her going. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, it's um, the
0: firefighters uh, are the heroes.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. You know, let's put another piece of duct tape. Uh, We can throw some chewing gum in here. And yeah, we're okay. We can keep going for, you know, another two years. And for a, a, a lot of maintenance people, this idea about, okay, we're not going to invest a lot of money in extending this life cycle is a tough take. It's a, it's a tough take for, for, you know, us guys that we, that's what we do. We keep it going. Um, but to understand that, okay, from the, from the business perspective, from the, the asset management perspective, it's not going to provide the value that we needed to provide. And as such, we may not be, you know, extending the life. It may be a case of, well, do what you can to keep it running for as long as you can without spending too much money. Uh, now, the, uh, <laughs> the kind of, not the opposite of that, but um, the, the unfortunate part of that is that some people uh, take that approach anyway. You know, They don't even look at the value side of it. They just say, yeah. keep it running for as long as you can, you know, and, and do as much you can, but don't spend any money. And it's not from a value perspective. It's just that they don't want people to spend money. Um, so there, it's, a, it's a different scenario.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's so many things in, in there of what you just said I, I want to talk about. So uh, the first one I, I want to talk about is, is value. Because I had this just the other day. Um, and... Maintenance people, we generally work in, in hours. That seems that's the easiest way to value something, easiest thing to understand. Um, and I was told by one of our, our, our senior managers, he's like, why do you keep giving me information in hours? This is meaningless to me. He's like, I need to understand in, in the mining industry, how much dirt we moved. That's how I, that's what I can understand this telling me that you know your truck has reached eighty thousand hours i don't care right and i'm like this is a pretty fundamental shift and you know for and, and as maintenance people we have always just said it's ours and we've really taken it for granted and so much so that most of our systems are built up around just looking at the hours now how do you feel about that kind of like fundamental shift in thinking and how do you think we can do that better? Um, like it's, it's about stakeholder engagement, I guess, at the end of the day and understanding what's important to them. But how can we do that better? Because like,
1: yeah, okay. No, and it's a great question. Um, and I would take it even if, if I were in your organization, I would have even taken it one step further and say, don't talk to me in, in uh, you know, tons of dirt. Talk to me in dollars. Talk to me in dollars. What, what <clears> does this mean in dollars? Dollars and cents—that's what it's all about. And when I, every time that I've, um, offered, yeah, it must be the last thirty years in industry, I would always t- turn things into dollars. I would mm-hmm. never talk. I would also run hours. Don't get me wrong. You know, I, I I did a webinar just the other day where I showed that we did failure code analysis that showed the number of occurrences of the failure code. Mm-hmm. Then we showed the number of hours that maintenance are spending on that particular failure code so that people would understand that you know we can't be doing everything, but the most important analysis was the cost of those failures,
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and I, that's
1: that's grabbed people,
0: yeah. And I think maybe maybe the issue is we always try and break it down into that cost that cost rate and like the cost per hour or the cost per ton, and that really you know, I we spent a lot of time getting the numbers down to that. And maybe that's not even that important. It's just how much is this costing the business and can we affect it? I think right. that's the important question.
1: Uh, absolutely. And that's it, you know, exa- exactly exactly w- with that analysis that I'm talking about was, yes, we'd look at the, the top costs and we would re- look at it each month and we would run a year to date in- so that we could say, OK, these are the acute issues that we need to do something about, as you said, how can we affect it? How can we do something like that? And then we'd run the year-to-date because those chronic ones may be cropping up. You know, yeah, it's it's number 11, it doesn't hit the charts. It doesn't get in at number 10, it's number 11 every week. And when you look at year-to-date trends, it's actually about number four, you know? And that's an issue that we could have missed. So it's again talking that, and the other thing is that um, you do have to change languages. You know, and, and and I always used to say uh, during one of my presentations that maintenance managers need to be bilingual and it could be whatever language they use to converse every day is their first language and finance is their second language. Because when you get in that boardroom, when you get, uh, you know, in, in places where you don't forget, you're going to want to say, you get I want a new truck or I want to spend this on, extending the life of the trucks. You're talking money. So they want to talk money back and sort of say, that's great, but how much is that going to get us? What am I getting out of this? What's my return on investment? Because that's what you're asking them to do is invest in the assets. So what's that return on the investment? And and the the best way, and, and it very, very seldom happens really, but the best way is that when you are goal setting, when your organization is goal-setting, it should be cascading from the very top. What is it your organization wants to be? What's it, what the, why are they in business? What sort of profits are they looking at? And then it comes to the mining guy and he says, okay, for us to achieve those things that you know, the organization has just described, we need to move 10,000 tons of dirt a day at $5 a ton. There's that money component. So it's, you know, you go back to that, that your boss and sort of say to them, okay, if I say that I can move you 10000 you know, 10,000 tons of dirt a day, but it's going to cost you $450 a ton because the trucks are worn, is that acceptable? And he may come back and say, no, 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 no. It's got to be $200 a ton. Well, our truck causes the problem. That's what I'm trying to explain to you is because of the truck issues our costs go up so your cost of you know getting the ton of dirt moved is is going up and so we're not going to achieve the profit margins that the guys at the top told us we need to achieve but if you do the reverse of it and say okay from the very beginning we we cascade our goals that way then it makes sense so that he comes and says yeah remember don't forget we've got to do you know five thousand tons a day at 200 bucks and you get to the point you can see, okay, my trucks, the money that we're spending, it's going to be 300, 400. Then you can go back and say, look, we need to do something about this because either we need to buy a new trucks. We need to change our approach to how we run them. You know, it, when they were brand new, it was okay to go for three months, Uh, a million ton or whatever it is between PMs and overhauls and things like that. Now they're, you know, these trucks are just like the rest of us. They're getting old. We can't go that million. You know, we need to be looking at at, and saying, okay, if uh, if we do the, you know, the PMs, we do the overhauls on a more frequent basis, we actually save money because what we're seeing is that we're using the same criteria that we used when it was brand new for when it's 70% through the life cycle and it's not working. We're having failures. And if it comes back to, you know, the, like I said, that analysis on failures that you can see that these failures are costing us twice as much as if we took it down, took it out of service a little bit earlier because it's an older truck We've changed our life cycle approach. It's at that point where we need to be doing it every 500, not every 1,000. Um, it's going to save us money. And now we're going to get maybe your $200 per ton of dirt moved, and we will be able to move. Yeah. you know. And the other thing with, with, when you look at things like failures with the trucks is, not only is it costing you more, but you're also not moving as many tons. So it's a double whammy. Mm -hmm. So you you can, you can take that and you can show them. Yeah, sure. Look, we're not hitting the the ton numbers that you want. And it's actually costing us a lot more per ton. Whereas if we did these things, we could hit the, the, the ton numbers that you want. And the costs would be in line with what's expected to give us that profit because that profit margin at the top is built on this, all these assumptions, you know, labor, overheads, everything. And if one of them goes sideways, And in maintenance and reliability if it goes sideways it goes straight to the bottom line because if you if you spend twice as much as you you know you're budgeted or you're planned that comes right off the bottom line that doesn't go anywhere else that's right off the bottom line and so your profits are not the same so so getting the goals cascaded talking languages that um, people understand and that's kind of how you have to, to work it, is that, okay, um, I, I think, as I say, I won't say naive, but for the, for the uh, gentleman to say, uh, or lady, it may be a lady, uh, to say that, you know, talk to me only in tons of dirt moved is naive, because I can produce one ton of paper for $1, or I could produce 100 ton of paper for $1. You know, it's uh, it's okay. So I don't know, you know, or you could pay, uh, you know, so you can say, well, yeah, ton is great. Cost me a dollar to produce. Well, that's not really what we want. We wanted a hundred ton for that dollar. And, and so you have to kind of, um, you can't just use it, it. It's a little bit of a folly to use just one partic- particular measure, such as, you know, tons of dirt moved or whatever, or paper produced because it's there's that cost factor that's attached to it. And that's where you can do the sales pitch. You know, if you can use those things, if you can turn it around and do exactly what, what we've just did giving him an example of, if you allow me to do things differently, you can achieve your numbers.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think we forget that, uh, is that, you know, in maintenance and reliability and especially in the, you know, the engineering type roles, you need to have that sales pitch. It's what, what are you selling? And, and you're selling, you're selling lower costs. You're selling increased production. You're, uh, but at the end of the day, you're selling a change to the bottom line. And
1: Steve, yeah. I'm go, I'm going to introduce this new word to your vocabulary. <laughs> you're selling value.
0: Ah, there we go. <laughs> that that's sums it up very nicely.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what you're selling. That's what you're doing is you're giving them that value proposition. It's, you know, let me do this and I'll deliver that. That's, that's the value proposition. Perfect.
0: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And, you know, there's always this conversation it's, is it operating costs? Is it capital cost? And, you know, I generally try and look at total cost of ownership of something and it doesn't really matter which bank account it comes out of. The end of the day is that how much money did we spend over the life cycle of the asset um how do you like i imagine you've had that conversation before of somebody <laughs> saying cliff your capital budget's way too high you need to take it out of your operating or something like that um how do you deal with, how, how have you dealt with that
1: um sometimes not very well um <laughs> uh, i i have had uh <laughs> Quite a few disagreements with finance people over exactly this topic, and and the challenge becomes, it is ninety nine percent of the time a finance decision. It's um, it's one where um, they look at uh, they look at things from their perspective. Uh, having a, a discussion with a finance person trying to explain that. Um, the amortized life of a truck is not how long it lasts. <laughs> you know, it, 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 I know it sounds silly, but um, yeah, they don't understand. No, no, it, it, that, that truck's being amortized over 20 years. Yeah, but we're going to run it for 40. Or if we don't do things properly, it's going to last 10.
0: That so, means it's you know, free to run after 20 years, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's like,
1: doesn't cost us anything. But, you know, so, and that is the challenge. And, and I've never um, I've never really found a satisfactory answer to that other than just making your point, because it is very much a finance base. And of course for finance, they're looking at things like, um, the taxes and everything else, because again, you know, uh, uh capital's not going from EBITDA operations is if we, if we, uh, slanted this way, our performance in the stock markets looks better. You know, if we slant it the other way, it looks worse. Um, There are things like the IFRS rules, which now kind of govern what's acceptable and what's not acceptable in in capital. And um, it is unbelievably vague, unbelievably vague. Uh, I won't mention an organization, but I have worked for an organization where changing an instrument could be capitalized,
0: huh. you know, and, um,
1: and and again, the, the reason for that is uh, it was how they wanted to appear at the market when they got to the marketplace and when they got to the stock exchange and, and the EBITDA would be such and such, and it would look a lot better because half of the maintenance, what we would term maintenance costs, would actually be funneled into capital costs. But it it didn't hit the Abitur, so EBITDA looked good. Yeah. Uh, had we spent the same money, to your point, absolutely, <laughs> we we had still spent that same money. It just came out of a different pocket.
0: Yeah, and I, and I guess it looks different because you know, in, in my case, I was dealing with uh, uh, dealing with an operation that was closing down, and they, you know, they capitalized anything over twenty thousand dollars and it was right. so at the end of the day when the mine actually closed it was this is how much capital it is is here and this is how much it's worth whereas if you put it on operating then it's it's just an expense and right. so um i am not sure what the end end goal is there i'm not a finance person to understand that once your mine shuts down it doesn't really like you've got all these assets that are sitting there that right. you can't really sell um <laughs> so i'm not right. sure what the plan was but it's
1: just appearances, honestly, yeah. and that's, that's exactly what I've seen is that, you know, that, um, and I've worked, for, I've worked for an organization uh, quite a few years ago that was privately owned. And um, the owner of the company would be the one that would make the decision as to whether it would be OPEX or CAPEX. And it would depend on how the company was doing for that here. And he would say, okay, um, yeah, yeah. No, we're making a bit too much money here. And i put it on OPEX. <laughs> you know, we don't want to be, oh, no, shoot, shoot. No, we're not going to be making enough money. Put it on CAPEX, you know, and, and it would change from year to year. Every year we would submit our CAPEX and OPEX budgets and it would go to the owner of the company who would then say, okay, we'll, we'll put it here for now. But, you know, we'll see how, it, and quite often, in, you know, halfway through the year, something that had been um, uh, described as CapEx became OpEx, and OpEx became CapEx, depending on how the market was going for, for the owner of the company. So um, it's a tough one, but, oh, yeah, I, I've had so many <laughs> fights with, because they, they ended up being fights, and, and, and I've actually been in some situations where I've just said, don't include me in the conversation. Because I'm not going to agree that, you know, everything has a definite life. I understand it has a definite amortization life. But, you know, and I use the example of, of kind of people. Average age for a man is 84. If average age for a woman's 88. Does that mean everybody lives to be 84, 88? Or when, or when people get to 84, and 88, we got to kill them or something, you know, because they're, what, what's this all about? It's an average. Yeah, but uh, uh, no, no, could the finance people just wouldn't get it, and so yeah. In one instance, I just said that's fine. Just um, I, I'm not going to agree with what you're saying, and I, I'm not going to agree that you know uh, capitalizing instruments is the right thing to do. So, as finance, you make the rules really as to you know what gets what gets uh, you know accepted and what doesn't get accepted, and sometimes you got to live with it. Um, but it, yeah. it does, it messes, it messes up, um, you know, your plans, it messes up history. It messes up all of these things that, okay, no longer can we do meaningful comparisons because the rules have changed. So, you know, what would have been included last year is not included this year. So again, all of the, the trends and, and, and history, it becomes meaningless. So. But, Tis what it is, you know. I say we're just supposed to there to keep it running for as long as we can, forever and ever. So that that's our that's our goal.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so you know, the last the last one I want to talk about there um, is you, you mentioned earlier uh, about people, and you know, I think your organization called people and processes. Um, that's really where you've focused a lot of your time, and looking at the people side of of the life cycle not only are you know in ISO 000, you know, people are assets and so there's going to be a life cycle component not that you necessarily dispose of people but um, <laughs> there's a life cycle component to that as well but uh, when we're looking at the people in the organization and and understanding uh, i guess that culture around around it how do you think how do you think we need we need to do things a little uh, how do you think we need to do things better to to get that value out of the life cycle?
1: Um, there's Again, this could be another 20 minute
0: topic, yeah. you know. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving uh, you broad and vague questions. So. Yeah.
1: Because again, it's when we look at it, if we were going to do this pie in the sky, you know, let's try doing everything, uh, you know, properly, which most organizations don't, but if you're looking for this ideal uh, organization, then they would have a really uh, solid skills matrix so that they would know what skills are required to run their business. And then that would be, you know, filtered down to the maintenance group. So, you know, but it would also be for all of the other uh, roles, you know, what, what, what what do we need to do? What skills do we need to operate this business to achieve those goals? And then we would look at it and say, OK, we need all of these skills in maintenance. Have we got them? And then if not, then you can train people up, you can hire people and all of those things, but that gives you a good basis to start to involve people, to get them involved, to explain to them, you know, like to run our business. We need all of these things and we need training. So we're, we're going to invest in you. Like you say, they are an asset we're going to invest in you in that we're going to supply training, we're going to get you and and as you kind of invest in them, you involve them and then you start to engage them and then you, you, if you if you do all of that and but you know the the, the culture is still um, do what I tell you and do it when I tell you, then all of this investment's going to go to waste, it's just like investing in equipment and never doing a PM because you've just ruined it. So you want, you want to engage these people then to use what they've been trained on, to use the skills they've got. You want to involve them, engage them, you want to empower them to use these things. Uh, you, you, you need to get it so that these people feel as if they're as much a part of it as you are, as anyone else is. And are not, there's no differences between you as the manager and them as the, the maintenance group, you all are aiming for the same things. And so it's explaining these goals. It's getting them to understand what the goals of the organization and more importantly, why. And having people understand why you need to do certain things, but it's all about communication. It's all about relationships. And using then these things like training, empowerment, engagement, involvement, authority, give them some authority. If you're going to get these people, you know, and they're trained and they're they're capable of doing, let them do what they're capable of doing. Don't let authority get in the way. So many times we see that, you know, where people will know exactly what to do, but still have to go back and ask the manager. You know, and meanwhile, you know, the equipment's still sitting there not working. They go back to the manager and they say, okay, what should we do? And the manager says, well, what do you think we should do? And he said, well, we should do this. And he said, yeah, go ahead and do it. Uh, you know, we just wasted a couple of hours. The equipment's not working. Uh, why not sort of say, okay, if you know what you, what the next problem is, do it. And and then it becomes, as I say, a, a total 20 minutes, if not a, a a complete webinar on how do we engage these people, but you've got to, you've got to get them engaged. You've got to make them feel part of, of, of the team. They've got to feel part of it.
0: Yeah. And and that's an interesting example of like, if you know the solution, just do it. Um, Does that get, can that easily kind of roll into the firefighting mentality and, primary thing is just getting this piece of equipment working at all costs um like i've seen that before where we've said just you're the mechanic you know how to make this thing work go make it work and then you end up seeing what they do and you're like all right maybe maybe those decisions shouldn't have been (laughs) been Mm -hmm, made at that mm -hmm. point um what do you do after that because you don't want to you told them get it up and you don't necessarily want to not reward fixing equipment, but how do you slowly change that mindset to uh, maybe something more like, you know, where is this asset added in its life cycle? Does this make sense to do this fix that you've, you know, you've spent half a million dollars and we're only getting an extra six months out of this piece of equipment?
1: Right. Well, first there has to be, um, there has to be criteria around these things. It should never be just go ahead and do it you know, there should be criteria around this and say, okay, do you understand what the problem is? Is it going, and and, you know, is it going to a cost half a million dollars? Is it going, you know, or B is it going to take the equipment out of service for the next six weeks? Is it, you know, and, and have these criteria around it so that, um, they can make this informed decision themselves. What you're doing is giving them the ability to make the informed decision. If it's just go ahead and do it, it's like you say we'll put the fire out. And if all that ever happens is that you put that fire out and they do it, then it'll happen again and again and again. So what you do in the situation where they uh, they h- handle a problem, deal with the problem, then you have to really sit down with them and say, okay, why did that problem happen? Because if we don't look at why did it happen and do something different, it's going to happen again. So it's really, um, it, it, it's not one thing. And, and like I say about uh, giving them the authority, giving them the authority is really the last thing you do. It really is the last thing because it means that you've got a mature group. You've got people that understand the difference between firefighting and fire prevention. They understand the difference between cost and value. It's okay, yeah, 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 yeah. You can spend a million dollars and get a dollar's worth of value, or you can spend $10 and get $100 worth of value out of it. They need to understand the cost value uh, sort of analysis. Um, They need to understand that uh, repeat failures are not good things and then you give them the authority but they need to understand all of those things first if you're living in a you know if you're starting off in in a firefighting mode and people are that way and people are the heroes you don't give them any authority really (laughs) Uh, and, and and i mean that you know sincerely it's you 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 can definitely have a you know have a huddle Let's have a quick huddle. Let's think about what we'll do here and get them. But you need to move them away from okay, uh, just dive in and do it, because that's not what giving the authority is designed to do. Giving the authority is designed to make the right decision. So you have to then I say come back to this idea of saying that okay, that was okay. You've done a good job at, at, at fixing that, but why did that happen? Why why did we get to that stage? Why is, and it could be, you say, yeah, well, we, you know, go back to our earlier example is, well, we, we're still doing the services and the overhauls as if it's a brand new truck. It's not, we can't leave it go for, you know, a, a hundred thousand or six months. We've got to do it. Okay, great. Let's look at working at the and getting them involved and getting them, you know, they, they have got good ideas. So use the ideas that they have and build on that and get to the ideas of, okay, not how can we fix it quicker or how can we dive in and do all of these things, but how can we stop it breaking down? That's really what we need to be looking at is why did that happen? And, and if you, if you, you know, wrap it up in fancy terms, then sometimes the tradesmen back off. If you sort of say oh no look we've got to move from uh reactive into proactive maintenance and we've got to be doing this this is you know it's like um okay i have no idea what he just said and i don't think i like it okay <laughs> but if you go and you say you know what cliff you, you did a great job fixing that but is there some way that we could stop that from happening why do you think that that, that happened that's a different approach. And then the people are going to, you know, hopefully buy in and get, get that sort of thing. So you don't have to wrap it up into this wonderful scenario where, you know, everything has a title. It's getting the people and getting that relationships. You're starting now, you're asking them. You're beginning to change that relationship. They begin to see that you're valuing, back to that term again, value. You're valuing their input. And then you can switch them away from, how about we do something, you know, what do you think, or ask them, what do you think we could do differently to, to prevent that from happening? What do you think we should be doing so that we know it's going to happen? What are we, you know, those types of things to move them from reactive proactive without ever saying those words.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. That is some, that's great advice, Cliff. And I think with that, we'll, we'll uh, end the episode. Um, But before we, we close out, do you have any, any plugs or anything upcoming that you want to give a shout out for? How can uh, where can people find more of Cliff Williams?
1: Um, I'm I, I live on LinkedIn um, because uh, amazingly there are still people who are wrong. Um, <laughs> I've, I've,
0: I've never been one of those. You've never <laughs> called me out.
1: <laughs> i uh, I still have to convert a few, um, but yeah, um, and we're on Upkeep. Um, I'm taking part in Mainstream, which is an Australian uh, conference in May. I just did a webinar last week. We just missed one. Uh, I Also did a podcast with Mobius Connect, which should, should be up running shortly. So uh, LinkedIn is a good place uh, to do it. But if you ever need to contact me, it's very simple. It's cliff at TMS asset management.com. And uh, as you, Steve know, I'm more than happy to talk to anyone about anything, reliability, <laughs> maintenance, and asset management. Um, yep. Yeah. And also uh, I'm available at people and processes and that's C. Williams at people and
0: That's great, Cliff. And I'll make sure I put all of those, uh, links and a link to your LinkedIn profile in the description. Uh, so people can people can find you if they they uh, need some advice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, they can find me even if they don't need advice. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Careful what you post. Cliff is always watching, right? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. thanks for coming on the show, Cliff. Uh, I think that was a fantastic conversation. And I'm looking forward to having you on again sometime soon.
1: Certainly, Steve, love to come back.